0: Welcome to Compounding Capital, a podcast where we dive into the discovery process and talk to some of the leading minds in investing to help you compound your capital. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Discovery and podcast guests may maintain positions in securities discussed in this podcast. Discovery is suitable for wholesale investors only. Welcome, my name is Chris Bainbridge and I'm joined by my co-host Mark Devisich. How are you going Mark?
1: Very well, thank you, Chris.
0: The Australian share market recorded one of its strongest starts on record. Do you want to share a brief summary of how things went for January?
1: Yes, global markets rallied, led by a rebound in cyclical tech and resource sectors. The ASX small cap index was particularly strong, being up 8.4% in NZD terms, and this trumped the NZX50, which was up just 4.3%. The ASX200 is only off 1% now from its all-time high, showcasing the strong Australian economy and leverage to the China reopening theme. Markets finished at a depressed level to end last year, and investors have become incrementally more positive that inflation will start to recede and potentially a soft landing in Australia is achievable. The Founders Fund performed strongly during the month, being up 7.4% versus the index of 8.4% as discussed. We're invested in a handful of high-caliber companies and our concentrated approach means our returns will likely diverge significantly from the index. The good news is, whilst the majority of our top five positions added little to performance in January, but we expect them to in February, we did record significant contribution from a number of smaller size positions.
0: Exactly. One additional point to note is that we continue to take a disciplined approach to deploying capital. Elevated cash levels act as a drag on performance during a month like January, but we're targeting a number of opportunities to deploy further capital in reporting season. Design the Founders Fund to be nimble so that we can maximise performance. It's nimble in size and nimble in terms of decision making. An intentional aspect of this design is the ability to take advantage of short-term opportunities which present. Do you want to share one of those opportunities which presented last year?
1: Yeah, Nanasonics is a $1.5 billion ASX-listed healthcare company. They provide best-in-class infection prevention tools, principally for disinfecting ultrasound probes. Nanosonics operates a razor-razor blade model where the disinfectant machine hardware is sold and it's accompanied by a predictable stream of disinfectant consumables revenue. So this is similar to uh, Fisher & Paykel Healthcare, which sells the Evo machines and associated mask consumables on the back. In August last year, NAN gave full-year guidance for financial year 23 of 20 to 25% revenue growth. We took note at this point as NAN fitted our thematic of healthcare companies poised for a rebound post-COVID. NAN then further updated at their AGM in November with a very robust four-month trading update, but it retained its original guidance. This update further piqued our interest. So for the four months to October, they reported revenues of 52.6 million. If the first four months were just repeated for the rest of the year, this would mean revenues of 158 million, compared to consensus at the time of low 150 millions. However, we knew that November and December are typically larger selling months for Nand, and furthermore, the second half of the year would also be stronger as you have the benefit of a higher installed base. Therefore, we felt it was very achievable that Nand's revenue this financial year would be over 165 million. The concern the market had with NAN was its move away from their US distributor GE, which accounted for roughly 90% of their business. However, the update put this concern to bed as NAN showed strong sales. NAN has enjoyed the pricing benefit of circa 15%, which previously went to GE as its reseller fee and this dropped through at 100% profit margin. Fortunately in December NAN's share price pulled back with the market weakness, giving us the opportunity to buy NAN at an attractive entry price. Furthermore, the short interest in the stock had reduced by about a third, suggesting the company was performing well and supporting our thesis. And then in January, the investment thesis played out. NAN had a strong profit upgrade during the month. They upgraded their revenue guidance to 166 million at the midpoint, and clearly they're benefiting from the materially improved pricing across both consumables and capital equipment as a result of the transition to their direct sales model. The consensus profit upgrades were significant with EBITDA increasing to around 20 million from the 12 million forecast prior. At the time of their trading update, NAND's share price was up 34% in the preceding three months compared to the small odds at 9%. So we've decided to exit the position and move on given some of the tailwinds that benefited in the first half result are now easing. And firstly, the Australian dollar, which is now strengthening, is detrimental to NAND as the majority of their sales are made in the US. second point is, it's harder to quantify how much of their upgrade is attributable to favourable FX and how much has been driven by this increased pricing with their direct sales model. And lastly, the volume growth hasn't accelerated from the prior year and potentially they've been aided with a channel fill post the move to the direct sales model and experience artificially high demand as hospitals restocked post the lockdowns. But it's not like there isn't future potential right Chris for Nanosonics.
0: Yeah, we're focused on the short term and we managed to maximise that. Looking at the medium to longer term, there's a couple of tailwinds. First, there's the upgrade cycle from Trophon 1 to Trophon 2. It's approximately 9,000 units which are now ready for an upgrade. And the first half performance indicated this is gathering momentum. Secondly, they've got their new flexible endoscope cleaning product, Chorus, which is awaiting clinical and regulatory approvals. This product offers significant potential upside, and lastly, management have done an incredible job moving from GE to a direct selling model in the US, and are inherently conservative, so the guidance probably reflects that. All in all, uh, a lot of uh, really good medium and long-term tailwinds, so will remain high on the watch list for us. Nanosonic's contributed to performance in January, but not everything goes to plan. Detracting from performance was Hub. We featured Hub24 in episode 1 of our podcast and it remains a core position so we'll touch on it briefly here. As a reminder, Hub is an Australian investment and superannuation platform. Hub's platform provides financial advisors with tools they need to onboard, manage and report to their clients. Hub reports key performance metrics including funds under administration on a quarterly basis. In January, Hub reported that it added $2.8 billion in net flows for the quarter. While this number was in line with our expectations, it was down 24% year on year. Hub's share price declined as the market fixated on the slowdown in growth. There's three points to note on the flows number. One, flows lag. Flows are a result of investor and advisor decisions taken three to six months before they actually show up in the numbers. So if we think back to last year, the flows in October and December of 2021 reflected the ambulant mood of markets in the middle of the year when official catch rates were virtually zero and markets were hitting all time highs. Secondly, talking to advisors in the market, we understand that activities were actually scaled back earlier in December this year than usual as people went on leave. Finally, the point to note is that Hub significantly outperformed its peers. Flows across the market were tough and if we look at key key competitor net wealth, they saw their flows down 42% on the prior year, uh, and even downgrade its full-year flow target. So what about HUB? Well, if we look at seasonality over the last four years, the first half has typically accounted about for about 47% of all flows. So if we look at the $5.8 billion in net flows that they took in in the first half of '23, then that probably implies about just over $12 billion in flows for the full year. So we're pretty confident around the flow outlook. Was there anything you took away?
1: Yeah, a couple of other points I noted was the advisor numbers. So while Hub signed 26 new distribution agreements, this was down on prior quarters, and Hub only added 53 advisors on the platform this quarter. So we'd like to see that number over 100. It could be argued that the more important metric is the FUA per advisor number, and this still remains low at $15 million versus industry averages of closer to 50, so that's a long run way ahead of increasing the penetration of the current advisors. The other point was around class, so we remain to be convinced on class. There was a subdued performance. Growth still remains above levels at the time of the acquisition. However is much more mediocre compared to the hub platform. There's a larger strategic rationale here, however, we're yet to see the benefits play out.
0: This is generally the part of the show where we provide feedback from the front line based on meetings we've had. That feedback will return with gusto post-reporting season. In the meantime, is there anything you've been reading or listening to which you thought was worth discussing?
1: Yes, one of the resources I've come across recently is the essays from Paul Graham. So Paul Graham is not that well known, but he's the founder of Y Combinator and a Harvard PhD in computer science. So Y Combinator has funded some of the most successful startups in history, including Airbnb, Stripe, Dropbox, etc. And Paul Graham has written over 200 essays and he's posted all of these on his own website, paulgram.com, and check it out. And he's done these over the last 20 years. I, to be honest, haven't read them all yet, but um, there's a couple that resonated with me. First one is called The Anatomy of Determination. So Y Combinator, they've seen tens of thousands of investment pitches uh, over the last nearly 20 years, and they've invested in over 3,000. So they've developed a fantastic pattern recognition about what makes a successful business. They learned quickly that the most important predictor of success is determination. So they say in the essay, at first we thought it might be intelligence, it makes a better story that a company won because its founders were so smart. But while it certainly helps to be smart, it's not the deciding factor. There are plenty of people as smart as Bill Gates who achieve nothing. In most domains, talent is overrated compared to determination, partly because it makes a better story, partly because it gives onlookers an excuse for being lazy, and partly because after a while, determination starts to look like talent. Paul then distils the components of determination into willfulness, discipline, and ambition. Got me thinking, did you see any of the Australian Open, Chris?
0: Yeah, look, fantastic performance by a number of players there, particularly Andy Murray was entertaining and undeniably Novak Djokovic. His persona and affiliations means he'll likely never achieve the status of Federer or Nadal, but his performance on the court is undeniable.
1: Exactly. Despite all the headlines, the unheralded story is extreme determination that Djokovic showed to win this year's Australian Open. Carried a leg injury throughout the whole tournament, came back after not being allowed to play last year and... Ignore the distractions around his family. In his winner's speech he said, This has been one of the more challenging tournaments I've ever played in my life, considering the circumstances, and this is the biggest victory of my life considering those circumstances. Djokovic also exhibits extreme discipline to stay at the top. He has an entirely plant-based diet, does yoga and meditation daily to achieve the optimal state of mind that allows him to keep winning Grand Slams at, at age 35 something we strive for at Discovery to compound these small improvements each day into great outcomes. But to be honest, I'm yet to start the daily yoga. Chris, what have you come across during the month?
0: I read a book called Global Outperformers by Deed Ison. Deed is a founder of Jenga Investment Partners, which are a global equities investment firm. As a mental model, this book is another version of 100 baggers. The book studies listed companies with a market cap over 50 million, which returned 10x between 2012 and 2022, and with the aim of understanding what works. If you're looking for a magic formula, there isn't one. However, there were a few interesting takeaways. First, earners not burners. There were 446 companies which increased tenfold over the decade. Of the 446, 82% of these were profitable in 2012 at the beginning of the study. If you're going to focus on unprofitable companies, you need them to be growing the top line rapidly, around about 50%, and they need to be on the cusp of profitability. Odds also favoured companies in the healthcare space or cyclical industries with high barriers to entry, such as semiconductors and salmon farming. Focusing on the earners, to 10 times your money, you need rapid top line growth, increasing margins, and multiple expansion. Let's take a look at each. In terms of revenue growth, 28% of the 10-baggers grew revenue at more than a 20% compounded annual growth rate over the whole decade. Now, as a rule of thumb, you probably need to be growing revenue around 15% per annum. Many grew through acquisitions, but unfortunately the book doesn't disaggregate between the importance of organic growth and acquisitive growth. Increasing margins were also critical. 75% of the profitable companies grew margins faster than revenue. With the average EBIT margin increasing from around 10% to 20% over the period. Margin expansion came from a combination of volume growth over fixed costs, pricing power, and growing more profitable divisions at the expense of less profitable ones. Finally multiple expansion. If your multiple just stayed flat you need to compound earnings at a 27% CAGR over 10 years to 10 extra money. Only 31% of the companies in the study did so, so clearly multiple expansion was key. There's no special insights here, apart from the obvious math, which is the higher multiple you pay, the higher the growth rate you need to demand. I know that you listened to a podcast that Dee did summarizing the book. Was there anything that you took out of it?
1: Yeah, a couple of other takeaways I had was, don't be a quality snob. So 74 of the companies came from cyclical industries uh, and a number from the materials sector. And also many winners came from countries whose stock markets had previously performed very poorly and were not that enticing to investors to to start the decade. Inside ownership, so 67% of winners had inside ownership over 5% and that's obviously something we look for very closely at Discovery. And leadership changes, of the 446 10 baggers in the decade to 2022. Only 5% of those companies screened similar returns in the 10 years prior.
0: There's plenty in the book and the best news is that it's available for free as an ebook online. This brings us to the most exciting part of our show, leaders and laggards from the ASX. What do you have for us this month, Mark, a leader or a laggard?
1: We have got leaders this month and in January the leaders were quite broad based but particularly cyclicals and beaten down sectors from last year. Cyclicals and technology had been sold down significantly over calendar year 22 as investors fretted about a weakening economy and deteriorating consumer environment. However, these were the sectors that rallied the most during January. In fact, the the ASX 200 Consumer Discretionary Index fell 30% uh, in the first six months of 2022 and has only partially recovered since then. So January is typically a month when retailers update, uh, post-Christmas and we saw a plethora of updates from companies such as Supercheap Auto, Accent, Maya, JB Hi-Fi, Kogan, etc. And these companies' share prices were up anywhere between 16 to 49% just in January. A common thematic from all these companies was obviously strong sales but higher gross margins as they put through price increases to offset the high cost of doing business and they also have benefited from a strong Australian dollar, which many of them hedged at higher rates for the inventory they purchased over the last six months. And to focus on one company in particular, that would be Accent. So Accent are a re- retailer of predominantly fashion footwear and a little bit of apparel. They've got brands such as Hype, Platypus, etc. and their core customer is young, and they're fully employed. Accent is backed by sophisticated investors in retail, such as Brett Blundy and they put out a very strong profit update, and their profits were up over three times from the first half the year before, which was impacted by lockdowns. Their trading update caused brokers to upgrade their full-year profit expectations by over 10%, and Accent are also ahead on their store rollout. They said previously they would roll out 50 stores in the entire year, and they've done that just in the first half. Accent are now trading in line with their longer-term uh, price earnings ratio of 15 times and it is less clear to see the upgrades to consensus, given margins are likely the best they will get. So we've decided there are better uses of capital and we've moved on from that position. Chris, what have you seen uh, during the month?
0: will balance things out with a laggard. Continuing with the sector theme, defences were a laggard. While there's no firm categorisation, the stalwarts of small cap portfolios recently have been companies like Capital Health, PSI, Propel Funeral Partners, IPH, Hanson and EQT to name a few. These positions have been viewed as a safe place to hide during macro uncertainty. However, flows have seen these names become crowded and in some cases expensive. An equally weighted basket of these names would have significantly underperformed during the month. Whilst not strictly defensive, One company which has been seen as a safe upgrade candidate has been OFX. OFX is a cross-border payments business which targets specific market segments such as SMEs, high-value consumers and online sellers. If you want to transfer currency for a property investment overseas, you'd use OFX. The cross-border payments sector is still dominated by global banks, but players like OFX have managed to carve out a niche by providing better rates, transparency and speed of settlement. OFX derated 16% during the month and is down nearly 30% from highs reached in August. What went wrong for holders? Well, there are two, probably two aspects. First, analytical. On the face of it, OFX reported a broadly in Q3 with net operating income up 1% organically year-on-year. However, if we dig a little deeper into it, OFX had increased prices by 9% in the first half and the spot FX market Was up around 11% in October and November on the prior year. Run rating the price increases and market growth, the buy side was probably expecting about 48 million versus a reported 39 million. The miss was driven by a decline in the high margin, high value consumer segment. This segment was a COVID beneficiary as people utilized OFX for high value property, share, and salary transfers. OFX indicated that the consumer segment softened throughout the quarter, suggesting an exit run rate near the bottom of their guidance range. The second was positioning. OFX was more crowded than a a. 10am gym class on work from home Mondays. The positioning left it vulnerable to a D-rate. The question is, what now?
1: Well, investors need to see the Q4 print to get a handle on where this high value consumer segment has bottomed out. However, OFX does start to look interesting. Firstly, price rises, which are almost a first in financial services, but their competitors are also implementing these. And then, secondly, valuation is attractive. OFX post D rate is trading around nine times uh, FY23 EBITDA, and this is down from its traditional multiple of twelve times, and has a very strong cash flow generation profile.
0: Exactly. They've also got a great management team and an appetite for EPS, a Peter EPS secretive MA. If we look at that, they've got about $75 million which they could deploy and have actually been strengthening this team during sort of the third quarter. So watch the space for calendar 23, definitely one for the watch list. Turn to the outlook. Most of our companies report half year results in February. We're excited about the updates that they'll give and how we're positioned ahead of these. Right, let's wrap it there. Thank you for listening. If you have any follow up, you can contact us at info@discoveryfunds.co.nz. At Until next time, good luck compounding your capital.